Welcome to the America's 360 podcast. Get the inside scoop and the outside perspective on the latest developments from Canada, Latin America, and everywhere in between. America's 360 is a production of the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars. Hello, I'm John Molesky, and this is America's 360, a program brought to you by the world's number one think tank for regional studies, the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars. And America's 360 is a collaboration among the Center's Argentina Project, Brazil Institute, Canada Institute, Latin American Program, and Mexico Institute. Well, unfortunately, crisis-driven migration is nothing new to the Americas. More than 5 million Venezuelans have left their country to date in what is one of the world's largest ongoing displacement crises. Elsewhere in the region, crisis-driven migration has been fueled by a complex mix of factors that includes economic instability, violence, and corruption, and more recently, the global pandemic, hurricanes, and other natural disasters have exacerbated already problematic situations. All of this resulting in large groups of people on the move in search of a safe place to live and to work. Today, our panel will discuss the whys and wheres of these migrations, and also look at how such population shifts are changing the region. So in addition to our regulars, we're happy today to be joined by Wilson Center Global Fellow James Hollifield. Jim is an expert on migration and immigration policy globally. He's a professor of political science at Southern Methodist University, where he also directs the Tower Center. Jim, welcome aboard. Uh, Nice to see you. Great to be here, John, Uh, joining you from the City of Light. I'm on hardship duty in Paris. I'm going to ask you a little bit more about that in a moment. I'm going to come back to you. But first, let's introduce the rest of our roundtable. Please say hello to Argentina Project Director Benjamin Gaden. Greetings, John. Brazil Associate and Slater Family Fellow, Anya Prusa. Hi, John. Canada Institute Director Christopher Sands. Hello, bonjour. Latin American Program Director Cindy Arnson. Hey, John. And Mexico Institute Director Andrew Rudman. Hey, John. How are you? Welcome back to all of you. Uh, looking forward to the conversation. And let's uh, return to Gay Paris, where Jim is standing by. And, and Jim, tell us, so before we get we dig into the subject matter, uh, tell us about your new assignment in Paris. Well, I uh, was lucky to be chosen as a fellow at the French Institute for Advanced Studies here in Paris. So I have this marvelous thing called a sabbatical year in academia, which... Uh, is one of the great things about being a a scholar and a professor. And I'm here working on the broad topic of migration and development. So specifically human development, but also economic development. And the project encompasses the Americas, Europe, the EU, Africa, the Middle East. So it really is quite a global, a global project. Well, very exciting. And congratulations. A great place to be and an important work. So let's dig in, Jim. Uh, I want to ask you, I know it's a, it's always hard to begin such a massive project or, or topic with such a broad question, but if you could provide an overview for us of the Americas and maybe mix in a little bit of comparison and contrast to what's happening elsewhere around the, uh, around the planet. Well, uh, John, I, we have a special issue of the Wilson Quarterly that will be coming out in October, and I wrote the lead essay for this special issue, which is on forced migration and human displacement. Certainly, we have migration crises that are happening in the Americas. Uh, And you alluded to the fact that the largest crisis in the America, people might be surprised to hear this, 
It's not in Central America. It's in Venezuela. So now uh, the, the Venezuelan, in terms of the numbers of Venezuelans who have left their country, fled their country, they're right behind the Syrians and just ahead of the Afghans. Now, with the collapse of the government in Afghanistan, the coming back to power of the Taliban, it's possible that Afghanistan will jump over Venezuela in terms of crises. But I think your listeners will be surprised to know that the Central American crisis, as dramatic as it is with people coming to the southern border of the United States, it does not make the top 15 migration or humanitarian crises in the world today. So there are much bigger crises happening in South Asia with the Rohingya, in Africa, both East and West Africa, of course, the Middle East with the Syrians, the Iraqis and others. So as bad as things look sometimes in the Americas, we actually live in a pretty quiet and peaceful hemisphere. Jim, Jim, what are those rankings based on? Is that sheer numbers of people who are on the move? Yes, that's those are the numbers of people who are uh, people of concern for the United Nations High Commission for Refugees. So they count they count the number of refugees, the number of uh, displaced people, the number of asylum seekers. And Venezuela is in actually a slightly different category because the UN hasn't decided yet how actually to classify the Venezuelans because they are fleeing for a variety of reasons. So, uh, you know, they're not all, they're not been put in the refugee category yet. But there's no doubt. I mean, if you look at the three million, three to four million people who have sought refuge, three to four million, let me repeat that, in Turkey, uh, you know, those people are refugees. I mean, they really have been displaced because of conflict, because of political persecution. So I guess if you looked at the biggest hot spot in the world today, it's really in the Middle East. And, you know, it directly affects Europe, the European Union, Turkey. And, of course, you have uh, enormous numbers of displaced people and refugees in camps in places like Uganda and Kenya. We're talking a million people plus, you know, sitting in camps. The The country in the world today that hosts the most refugees and displaced people is actually the tiny little country of Lebanon. As a percentage of the population, one in four people, John, one in four people in Lebanon is a refugee or a displaced person. So, I mean, we shouldn't be, I mean, we, we should just try to relax a little bit in the U.S. and realize that uh, as bad as things are on the U.S. southern border, and they are bad, you know, we're still not uh, in the top 15 in the world in terms of humanitarian crises. Thank you, Jim, for, for setting the scene for our discussion. Now I want to ask the rest of our panel to weigh in. And let's let's start, if we can, specifically on Venezuela, since it's been a focus of my introduction and, and of some of Jim's remarks. And, and what are you, I would like to know your thoughts on not just the, the nature of the ongoing crisis, but also the, the ripple effects within the region, how this is affecting other countries. And is this something that is just going to be a chronic condition for the foreseeable future? Who'd like to begin? Cindy, can we start with you? Sure, I'll start with that. I think it's important to underscore how these numbers continue to grow. You used in your introduction the number of 5 million. The UN, in its most recent report, said that there are now 6 million Venezuelan refugees around the world. And Colombia, which has a long border with Venezuela, it has the largest single number of 
of Venezuelan refugees of any country in the world. It's now over 2 million people. And, you know, Colombia, like the rest of South America, Latin America, much of the developing world, is suffering, you know, huge increases in unemployment, informality because of the COVID pandemic, lack of access to vaccines. So, you know, it is really a challenge for countries that are already on their knees to have this this number of refugees. And I think just also to, to point out that unlike the, the kind of backlash that you see in the United States and, and Western Europe, the administration of, of President Ivan Duque offered temporary protected status to about 1.8 million Venezuelans that were in Colombia prior to January of this year. It's, you know, there are problems in implementation, you know, every which, every way you turn, but it is still an enormously generous gesture that I think stands in stark contrast to the rising xenophobia and, and anti-immigrant sentiment in so many parts of the developed world. Thanks, Benjamin Gaden. I think it's absolutely right. I think you know, Colombia has been you know, really big hearted in its response. I think in general, Latin America actually does have an advantage, which is the, the homogeneity of the migrants that are traveling through the region. Generally speaking, you have you know, language in common, religion in common, often ethnicity in common. And I think that does help not only in you know, encouraging countries to be generous in accepting migrants, but also in the integration of these migrants. In the case of Venezuelans, you know, polling shows they don't want to return in the foreseeable future. They won't. And so it's, it's doubly important not to have refugee camps like Jim was describing in Europe, but rather migrants really integrated into their new societies. And I think that's happening and it's facilitated by the fact that there's so much in common. There's also historical debts in the region. You take Venezuela, for example, when Argentina was suffering during the dirty war dictatorship, you had Argentines fleeing to Venezuela, seeking safe harbor and what then was a stable democracy. Now the memories of that, I think, do encourage other countries to take in Venezuelans to pay back that historical debt. Anya Prusa. Thanks, John. I think in Brazil, what you're seeing is a mix of, of what Cindy has explained and what Benjamin has offered. There are certainly efforts by the Brazilian government to integrate the Venezuelan refugees. There obviously is a bit of a language barrier since they speak Portuguese in Brazil. But the government has, you know, brought about 50,000 Venezuelans from the border with Venezuela and integrated them into more than 700 cities and towns, you know, provided education assistance, uh, housing assistance, you know, some job training. And what they found is that these Venezuelans who are integrated into Brazilian society have been doing quite well. That still leaves, you know, several hundred thousand Venezuelans on the border with Venezuela, right, in northern Brazil, which is a very poor region of the country. And so there we're seeing, you know, high rates of joblessness, which has been exacerbated by the pandemic, you know, state governments that really aren't able to to tackle this crisis and growing tension within local populations. Thanks. Andrew Rudman. Thanks, John. I, w- I was just sort of Thinking about something that, that Benjamin said, I, I think the homogeneity point is true, except in the cases where it isn't, uh, which would be the case of Haitian migrants and refugees. And what you see in, in Mexico, for example, is some, frankly, some distinctions in how they're treated. Uh, there aren't a huge number of Venezuelans or Haitians in Mexico, but there are some. And the, and the way Haitians, particularly Afro-Haitians, are being treated it is, in fact, different than uh, and some of that is linguistic, of course, as Anya said, with respect to Portuguese and Spanish, but some of it, I, I think, is, is just flat-out racism. So there's a, a sort of an out-of-the-frying-pan-into-the-fire aspect to what you're describing, that just getting to a destination doesn't provide relief in any automatic way. Chris Sands. 
wanted to jump in on this. It's an interesting question what role Canada could play in all of this. Canada has a uh, points-based immigration system. So most immigration is popular in Canada because people assimilate well. But there's also a strong human rights commitment on bringing in asylees and refugees. And they've done a terrific job with certain countries. So they were very much a leader on Syrian refugees. They're playing a big role on Afghan refugees. Within the Western Hemisphere, I think actually they have a capacity that some of the other countries don't. They don't have a very large Hispanic population, but they could easily be working with the U.S. on Central American migrants. They have strong ties in Venezuela, and yet their policy is aligned with us. And I'm thinking back, some of you will remember, Canada stepped forward to play a major role after the Pinochet uh, regime was established, taking Chileans who came mainly to Western Canada. And it became one of the largest Hispanic communities within Canada, but it was very circumstantial. They saw a crisis and wanted to play a role. So I think we shouldn't underestimate Canada's ability to step up its game here and, and maybe alleviate some of the problems of other countries. And is the uh, the barrier, the greatest barrier to that currently COVID-19? Uh, you know, it's, it, it's not so much that, it's just that they have targeted certain countries and they haven't really stepped up on this one. So I think uh, as part of the OAS or or really just as a Canada-US conversation, I think if Canada were to volunteer or we were maybe to suggest they volunteer, we could have we could have a really good response from Canada. Right now, their biggest target is Haiti. And of course, that makes sense. There's a large Haitian population and there are refugees from there as well. So Jim, in, in terms of Haiti, you know, we've seen an assassination. So we've had political turmoil an earthquake, we have natural disasters, and uh, unfortunately, we're happen- We're talking about the poorest nation in the region. Uh, is it useful when we have this kind of discussion to distinguish between the causes among- from among the causes for disruptions and movement of people? In other words, there are self-inflicted wounds, things that nations do, whether corruption or other things that might lead to movement. But then there are these natural disasters, which certainly seem more frequent, whether they are or not, is a is a larger question. Is it useful to distinguish? And are there different mechanisms internationally in reaction to these different types of disruptions? Uh, John, that's a, a great question. And migration, uh, for those of you who have studied it and thought about it, it is one of the most complex phenomena in in the world today. It, it's very, very hard to uh, parse all of the different motives uh, uh, for movement. One of the things I think that we need to be aware of is uh, the first people to go, the first migrants to go, and we've seen this again here in Afghanistan. We saw it in Cuba after the Cuban Revolution. The people who move are the people who have the means and the ability to go. <laughs> I think Benjamin alluded to this also earlier about the Venezuelans, or maybe it was Cindy. But these are not the wealthiest people in the country. I was really stunned, you know, working in the Wilson Center in Washington this summer and having spent a lot of time in D.C. I think most of the Venezuelan elite live in Washington, D.C. or Florida. You know, they have long since left the country. So there's an enormous sort of brain drain going on there. But but Haiti, you, you're, you're absolutely right that, uh, you know, the Haitians have been been forced to to leave, you know, to survive for for many many different reasons, and and this is a very very poor country, and, and you know, the Haitians have a long history of of migrating to Florida and to the United States. Of course, uh, I'm sure Chris could talk about the linguistic uh, cultural ties with Canada. Many Haitians go there, and they may get in partly due to the point system because they're French speaking. So the other thing to keep in mind, John, about why people move, apart from having the means to do it, 
They need information. They need networks, something that lowers the risk of moving. So if you know somebody somewhere, if you have family members there, if you have a church or a mosque or, uh, you know, a, a synagogue, you know, some institution that can help support you when you arrive, you know, that can facilitate movements. And of course, the Haitians, as you know, have a very large diaspora. So there's very likely that they have a family member where they're going. If you go back to the Central Americans, many of the Central Americans who are coming, especially the minors and children, you know, their, their parents are probably living in the United States. So they are moving, trying to find their parents, trying to find their relatives. So there's a, a big family dimension to this. Of course, many of them are fleeing simply because they cannot survive where they are. Their lives are threatened or imperiled by the gangs, by often by the state or the government itself. You know, they, they may be in a conflict situation, you know, where they, they've got to, you know, if you don't leave, if you don't flee, uh, you're going to perish. And it would be interesting to come back to the Venezuelans because Venezuelans are leaving basically because the government in some ways has sort of collapsed in Venezuela. The economy has collapsed. So what, what do you do with people like that who are not necessary, necessarily fleeing persecution, but they're fleeing because they simply cannot survive or live in Venezuela anymore? Mm. Okay, well, I know a number of you have comments or, or thoughts that you want to add to the mix. Let's begin with Andrew Rudman. Yeah, Jim, I was just going to follow up on the, as you were talking, I was thinking about some of the conversations we've had about Central American migration through Mexico, which is that people generally are migrating because they've made a somewhat rational decision, rational in their own minds, that this is the best alternative. You know, there are exceptions, but most people would rather stay at home rather than, than migrate, particularly if, it, if it's a case of, you know, walking hundreds or, or thousands of miles. And, and so maybe to the point of what kind of migration, I suppose, if you are migrating, whether you're fleeing economic prosecution or or, or some other kind of prosecution, I guess, to the migrant, it probably doesn't really matter, does it? Benjamin? Yeah, I, mean, I think the geography matters, but I think Jim and Andrew are absolutely right. I mean, you, people don't take this decision lightly. Um, and I think if you just look at the harrowing journeys from Central America to Mexico, made even more difficult now by really strong enforcement um, in both places. But also, I mean, you now see tens of thousands of migrants going from Colombia to Panama through the Darien Gap, this jungle with snakes and thieves and cocaine traffickers and crocodiles. I mean, these are dangerous, scary, uncertain journeys. And when you get to the United States, it's not clear at all that you'd be welcome there. So I think, you know, it really is important to emphasize the level of, of violence and poverty that people are fleeing when they make this decision to leave. Cindy, on that question of uh, whether or not you'll be welcome, what can you tell us about U.S. migration policy? I'm not an expert on U.S. immigration policy, but I think it's clear that there are very different standards. I mean, over the Trump years, the number of refugee admissions, for for example, were lowered to absolutely historic levels, you know, several thousand. And those would be for people that that are trying to claim asylum in the United States. It's very difficult. People say, well, you know, folks shouldn't come illegally. There are legal paths. Well, there, it's, the legal paths are, are almost non-existent at this point and have onerous requirements that make people stay. There's also differentiation in U.S. immigration law. Haitians and Cubans are treated very, very differently. Although Cubans, I think, have been now brought into the more restrictive policies that have prevailed for the nationals of, of other countries. 
the Biden administration granted temporary protected status to Venezuelans already in the United States, meaning that they would not be deported from the United States once they arrived here. But the Biden administration has also not made it easier for Venezuelans to come to the United States. So they do, poor people do what they what they are able to do, which is, you know, cross mountains, you know, on foot, you know, migrate by bus, hitch rides, whatever, and get to these countries that are the closest to Venezuela itself. Jim Hallfield. Yeah, I want to emphasize something Benjamin said, which is that geography matters a lot. <laughs> so, I mean, if you look at the migration crises in Europe, the Middle East, Africa, uh, or South Asia, I mean, you know, where do the Rohingya flee to when they're running away from from the uh, military in Myanmar? They go to Bangladesh, uh, not because life is better in Bangladesh, but because that's that's where they can get to. Same with the Venezuelans who don't have the means. Obviously, they're going to the countries that they can get to. So we shouldn't forget about geography. And I'm looking at Chris Sands. I mean, Canada has one huge advantage, <laughs> not quite as good as Australia, I might add, but, but Canada is pretty far and it's hard to get there. And you're next door to the United States, you know, and so the U.S. attracts a lot of people simply because we're a large, wealthy country and we, we do have a lot of space. But let me just add something very quickly here. When you look at these crises that are going on in different regions, it's it's impossible for one country to manage this by itself. I mean, you, we, we must have cooperation. And in, in the refugee policy area, we talk about burden sharing or responsibility sharing. And I think Chris Sands alluded to this. Canada stepping up and trying to play a role internationally in taking more people at the same time that during the Trump administration, Trump was trying to shut down all migration, basically, to the United States. He was cutting refugee numbers to historic lows, as Cindy said. So the U.S. was backing away and not playing its role internationally. And if you think the U.S. is one of the worst offenders, I think Japan last year took 12 refugees, uh, 12 so, I mean, Japan, but Japan will give a lot of money to the UNHCR. You know, they will step up and pay, but they will not take uh, the refugees and asylum seekers. For Europe, let me just conclude by saying uh, the Europeans are on the doorstep of what, what I call the great crescent of instability, you know, which stretches from the Sahel in West, Western Africa all the way to South Asia. So the Europeans, in that sense, they really are on the front lines of, of many of these humanitarian crises. Chris, uh, before you respond or, or add what you wanted to add, I, I can't let this moment pass. If we pull a quote from Jim Hollifield out of context, <laughs> I think what he said was, uh, Canada, not as good as Australia. <laughs> it's a, it, I, but by that I meant Australia is a little more I, even more isolated than Canada. Jim, let's not let facts get in the way of a, a good quote here. Well, it, I, and I'm just glad he didn't say that can, Canadian beer was not as good as Australian beer because that would have been a, a real. Theme. That's the line. The line That's that the can't line. be crossed. What I was going to say is uh, is is something building on that. You know, because geography can be a challenge. This is one of the reasons that we have developed through the UN this idea of safe third country. And in crisis situations, countries like Canada can actually forward position extra personnel to be able to handle refugee applications in a safe third country. And you could take a country like Trinidad or or British Honduras, sorry, now Belize, and say, we're going to 
use this, we're going to come to your country and we're going to try and process people. And for those smaller countries, that's a temporary, you know, surge activity. And so they may be willing to partner there, even though they don't want to take the refugees ultimately and settle them there. So those kinds of combinations, those kind of agreements would make it possible for Canada to be, if not America's backyard, perhaps America's vestibule uh, <laughs> and a home for some of these migrants as well. So we, you know, as usual, this is such a big and complex uh, uh, topic that we can't possibly wrap it in a nice, tidy package. And I see our expert, Jim Hollifield, uh agreeing with that idea. Uh, you know, the advantage, we get to see each other. I know when you hear the podcast, you just get to hear us, but we get to actually see each other, which is, I think, an advantage. Is that correct? So anyway, but what I'd like to do is get some final thoughts and really leave it wide open because, of course, there are things we haven't had a chance to talk about. And I'll, I'll Jim, I'll let I'll come to you last since we'll give you the, the seat of honor as our special guest, and then we'll just go through the group. Otherwise, Benjamin, can we begin with you? Yeah, I think one important point is the role of the international community in supporting Latin American countries that are generous. In, in welcoming and integrating migrants. I think, you know, Cindy has pointed out Colombia is a really good example of a place that has been very willing to bring in Venezuelans and let them stay. And I would say the international community has been very generous in its praise and very stingy in its support. And I think, you know, that should change. Anya Prusa. Just building off what Benjamin said, you know, I think a willingness to accept and integrate migrants is, is a great first step. But we also need to think about why they're fleeing their home countries in the first place, right? And what we can do, you know, whether here in the U.S. or through the international community to try to create better conditions on the ground. Thanks. Andrew Rudman. Well, I'm going to uh, take you at your word, John, and go kind of uh, off the board, so to speak. Um, I, I think one thing we didn't get a chance to talk about today that's also important is the existence of, of internally displaced persons or IDPs in countries, even countries like Mexico, which you think of as a transit country or a sending country, but because of situations, and Anya kind of alluded to this, because of what's happening in certain countries, you, you have IDPs in the region, and, and I think that's another topic to look at. No, th thanks, Andrew. I'm glad you went off the map. Important point to be made. Cindy. Sure. I, um, in addition to needing more uh, resources from the international community for Latin American countries, I guess what I fear are the rising levels of xenophobia and the way and how easy it is for politicians to scapegoat migrants, especially at a time of economic hardship for general populations. And the time is really ripe for this. And even though Colombia has adopted a very generous policy, public opinion polls show that this is not a popular policy with Colombian citizens. So I I really do fear um, that the moment is ever more ripe for the scapegoating of migrants and for anything but a, a generous approach. Oh, a discouraging notion, Cindy, but thank you. Chris Sands. Well, really, I think that this is, this is a classic example of a problem that calls on the international community to come together. And you know, I, I tried the Canadians because I think they have capacity that they aren't using. But one of the capacities I think Canada's had in the past is pulling countries together at forums like the UN and so on. It's not the U.S., but kind of building coalitions of support. Crisis like this calls for everybody to step up. And for the Canadians who sometimes feel like they only are sort of on the margins of this hemisphere, taking on a challenge like this will make them feel much more like part of the family. And I think that has dividends for their foreign policy going well into the future. Thank you. Uh, Jim, we give you the, the final word. Well, I, I'm going to say something very supportive and positive about the, my friends and colleagues at the UNHCR 
the International Organization for Migration. There were there were some criticisms earlier, but these are organizations that do extraordinary work with very, very limited resources. And, you know, they have uh, both IOM and UNHCR have stepped up in tremendous ways, in, in especially with the Venezuelans. They're doing the best they can. I would describe them as an international fire brigade. You know, when things really get bad and, and lives are on the line, it's these organizations and they, they need our support both politically, economically, financially to continue to do the work that they do. Having said that, I do want to just reinforce what Cindy said, which is that, you know, the political climate is is not great. And, you know, the, the strong reactions that you get in these situations of crisis, you know, can lead to very, very bad outcomes. And we should keep in mind that, that these are people, you know, who have lives and families. They're trying to survive and do the best that they can. And let's not shunt them off in some corner you know, or lock them in camps because there's a tremendous amount of talent and human capital there. And I think, uh, you know, my colleagues, for example, at the Refugee Studies Center in Oxford, you know, have done so much work, so much great work on this, along with the UNHCR, to get these people in in a, a situation where they can pr- be productive and pursue their lives in, in a very difficult circumstance. The final thing I would say is that, unfortunately, you know, when you're in a crisis, <laughs> Governments have to find a, a solution to this. And Chris mentioned, you know, the safe third, third country. I mean, unfortunately, the way you stop it when it's really happening, and we see this with both Biden, we saw it with the Europeans in the migration crisis of 2015-16, you designate a country as a safe third country, and then you pressure them and bribe them to stop the flows. I mean, the Turks did it, you know, to hold the Syrians, keep them from coming to Europe, and you know, Biden is taking a page exactly out of the Trump playbook here. The Mexicans are going to be the first line of defense. We're going to reinforce that southern border. And and Anya is absolutely right. Ultimately, we have to look at the root causes. You know, what's driving these people to to leave? And that's really what I'm working on here in, in Europe uh, this year, in France, looking more at the root causes and the relationship between internal migration, international migration, you know, humanitarian migration. So again, a very complex topic. It's not going to go away. We're going to have to keep after this, keep studying it, you know, keep trying to find the the right mix of policies, both at the national and international levels. Well, Jim, thank you. I know I speak for the uh, Team Americas 360 when I uh, thank you for sharing your expertise with us today. Anya Benjamin, Cindy, Chris, Andrew, thank you as always. Uh, And of course, thanks to our listeners. Thank you for joining us. Hope you'll join us again soon. Uh, this episode of America's 360 was produced by Oscar Cruz, Cecily Fasanella, and Zoe Reed, and edited by Sam Vicroy with the assistance of Barbara Chamati and Manuela Jimenez. We want to thank our terrific America's 360 production team. We couldn't do any of this without them. So until next time, thank you for joining us one more time. And for all of us at the Wilson Center, I'm John Molesky, and this has been America's 360. You have been listening to America's 360, a podcast about the innumerable ties among the nations of the Western Hemisphere. You can subscribe wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. To learn more about our programs, please visit wilsoncenter.org. And please join us again next time for another episode of America's 360.